My brother Scott Cram has consented to deliver the word of exhortation for us this morning in connection with his remarks. He's asked that we look at Habakkuk chapter 3. So if you'll turn that up and follow along with me, please. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3. The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, receive thy works in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before he went, the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oath of the tribe, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers, The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head of the horse of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck, Selah. Thou didst strike through with the staves the head of the villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me, to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, at at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people... He will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hind's feet, and He will make me to walk upon thine high places to the chief singer on the stringed instruments. Let's 
give our attention to Brother Scott Cram. Good chilly morning to all you Floridians from the even chillier Richmond Hall Ecclesia. Great to be here and uh, we, as we meet around the, the Lord's Word, which of course is our objective today to worship Him, to sing praises unto His name and to glorify uh, those things that are most assuredly held and cherished among us. There are many patterns to be observed in the Scripture and patterns that now are history in nature uh, but are representative of things and events that we can expect to be similarly repeated in these latter days. Habakkuk is such an example drawing upon the record of Israel's experiences surrounding the Babylonish captivity in the 5th and 6th and 5th centuries B.C. Habakkuk recounts the nation's afflictions and Yahweh's great mercies shown through the deliverance of his chosen people. Habakkuk, in his prayer in the third chapter, read this morning, Although in despair for the troubles of Israel, he resolves to delight in Yahweh. When all is gone, Habakkuk concludes that Yahweh has not departed. He is not gone. Now, broadly speaking, we in this year... 2010, uh, are in remarkably similar times to those days before that Babylonian captivity. Divine standards are relaxed or ignored altogether. Gross permissiveness prevails. Turn to the first chapter of Habakkuk and we read in that fourth verse, Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, wherefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Now despite despite Habakkuk's plea to Yahweh to intervene and save Israel, Yahweh had determined that he would bring the nation to an end. Divine glory would succeed over the Jewish rebelliousness and the Gentiles' darkness. In his final vision recorded in this third chapter, Habakkuk was privileged to see the future and to be witness to the triumph, the triumphant march of Christ and the glorified saints conquering and destroying that great and terrible fourth beast, of Daniel, along with the man of sin and the apostasy that 
is associated with him. And Habakkuk concludes with this end-time vision. And reading from the complete Jewish Bible, the 18th and 19th verse of Habakkuk 3, I will rejoice in Adonai. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Elohim Adonai is my strength. And this too, brothers and sisters, is our exhortation to rejoice in the strength and salvation of Yahweh who is without end and without beginning. Now Habakkuk's message can help us see beyond the present frustrations to the glory of the future and so equip us that we might extract comfort and joy in these most difficult situations assuredly ahead of us. For we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the Christadelphian Expositor republished a 1992 book on Habakkuk's message that was entitled, Upon the Watchtower. And I'm going to read a, a paragraph from that, and it begins, quote, The basic message of the prophet is, the just shall live by the faith, by his faith. And that's in Habakkuk 2 and 4. These words are com a complete summary of the doctrine of the atonement and indeed of all religions and revelation. They are associated with the one who will come to establish it. The prophet was told, though it, speaking of the vision, tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. The Septuagint renders this phrase, Though he should tarry, wait for him, for he will surely come and will not tarry. The words in this form are cited by Paul and applied to Christ in Hebrews in the 10th chapter, the 37th verse. They suggest that the original Hebrew conformed thereto. Christ, as the Word made flesh, is the personification of the vision given to the prophet. The one who will come is the Mighty One from Teman, Christ in glory. And the prophet was exhorted to wait for the glorious consummation he will effect. End quote. This glorious victory spoken of in the, in the preamble is over Babylon and its progeny, the empires of Daniel's image, the emergent apostasy led by the man of sin and all those of like disposition. But let us turn our attention for a few moments to Babylon. There was the Babylon of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Habakkuk's day, whose fate is prophesied in the book that is before us, the vision seen by Habakkuk in this third chapter speaks also to another Babylon, a Babylon in the New Testament, a mystical Babylon in conjunction with Gog of Ezekiel 38. And this is confirmed by reflecting upon Paul's reference in Acts to Habakkuk 1 and 5, where in Acts 13:40 and 41, Paul quoted Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold ye despisers, and wonder 
and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Today, we are under siege by this influence of Rome, politically and ecclesiastically. We must, like Habakkuk, look past the doom of the day and rally to the joy acknowledged by Habakkuk, knowing that the just shall live by his faith. Though we wrestle with principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The faith of Habakkuk can be our joy and our mantle as well. Babylon was founded by Nimrod upon those principles of rebellion against Yahweh. And it has represented those principles ever since. The war against this influence we are to take unto ourselves the words of Paul in Ephesians. So take up, this is reading from the complete Jewish Bible, Ephesians 6.13. So take up every piece of war equipment God provides so that when the evil days come, you will be able to resist. And when the battle is won, you will still be standing. An understanding of Habakkuk's third chapter is one of those pieces of war equipment provided by Yahweh to which we will now turn our attention. In light of Yahweh's two declarations in the second chapter of Habakkuk, the first one being in 2.14, where the earth shall be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the second and the twentieth verse, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk desires to see the fulfillment of this divine purpose. And this he is granted through the vision that was revealed to him and recorded for us in the third chapter. And we will now consider the application of that fulfillment all of which is in the latter days. And we'll begin with verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. And His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. Now looking at the Hebrew we learn that God is Eloah, a mighty one or a strong one. And the Holy One is an angel, or in this case, the angel of the bow, the rainbowed angel. And Teman, most marginal references will tell you that that means south. And furthermore, Brother Thomas in Eureka notes that the word came in this verse should have been rendered shall come in. So with these understandings, the first phrase in this third verse is better understood as reading Aloha, a mighty one, shall come from the south and the holy one, the rainbowed angel, from Mount Paran. Aloha in this case is the deity in fleshly manifestation or in manifestation. 
and equivalent to the Holy One or the Messiah, Jesus, the Anointed One. Fittingly, Eloah, in its Chaldean form, is the word used for the setter up of the kingdom in Daniel 2.44. In the days of these kings shall the God, or the Eloah, the Mighty One, of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Habakkuk standing in Jerusalem, which is where he is thought to have been, and looking south in the direction of Mount Paran, sees in vision Jesus, clothed with the saints, coming in glory and power. The balance of the third and fourth verse only further amplify the power of Yahweh's messianic son and the certainty of his judgments on this world. And the final phrase, and there was the hiding of his power, deserves some comment. As Christ and the saints ascend from the south, from the south toward Jerusalem, from the world's perspective, they will be an unidentified army. Their power hidden from and not yet exposed to the world. Christ will not have revealed himself to the world in general, nor to his ancient people, Judah and Ephraim. Ephraim being representative of Israel that is scattered throughout the world, and Judah representative of those Jews who at the point of this vision have gathered in the land of their nativity. Thus the power of Christ, clothed with the saints, is unknown and unanticipated, having had no prior engagements with which to demonstrate their immutable power. The world is attentive, but indifferent. So let's pause for a moment and review the vision's point in time. Many Jews have now returned to Israel and are prophetically considered Judah, returned in unbelief, not accepting Jesus as the Son of Yahweh and their Messiah. At this time, they have now fled Jerusalem for covert protection in Moab and Edom under the shadowing wings of the Tarshish powers spoken to us in the record of Isaiah 18, 1 and 2. Gog has come from the northern parts and overflowed and passed through Jerusalem and has now occupied Egypt, as we read in those last verses in Daniel 11, 40, and 40, 40 through 43. The first resurrection and judgment of the covenanted people, the called, the chosen, and the faithful, has occurred and the marriage feast completed. The march north of the rainbowed angel clothed with his saints has commenced. And now, continuing in verses 5 and 6, Habakkuk sees Jesus pausing for a moment to evaluate the level of judgment due the profane and the wicked. Judgments that include pestilence and plagues and arrows and lightnings and thunderbolts and burning heat. For all these are the meanings expressed in verse 5. Before him went the pestilence and the burning coals went forth at his feet. But before these judgments were released, 
the mighty one from the south, will survey the work before him. And in the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So this is Christ considering the work before him. Some nations, because of their wickedness and refusal to submit, will be measured for destruction. Others measured for continuance under his rule. Habakkuk records and captures this in the sixth verse. He stood and measured the earth and beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. This verse is really a duplicity of thought. He stood and measured being similar actions to beheld and drove asunder. And why? Because measured is the Hebrew root word for to shake. Thus he stood, considered, and then shook the nations. A few decades later, the prophet Haggai captured this same vision. And we read in Haggai 2 and 22, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. The mighty armies of the nations will perish by their own doing, just as did the host of Median that fell to each other when Gideon's 300 men blew their trumpets. Jesus' first engagement is with a segment of the Ishmaelites, known by us as the Arabs in northern Saudi Arabia. This territory is within the limits of the land grant of Abraham. And in the seventh verse of Habakkuk 3, we read, And I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Quoting again from the expositor on this verse, they will be brought into subjection to Christ in preparation for providing a refuge for the Jewish people fleeing from the Gogian oppressor. In this regard, the vision of Habakkuk should be considered in conjunction with Isaiah's prophecy of Arabia in Isaiah 21, 13-15. Isaiah predicts that the normally antagonistic inhabitants of the land of Teman shall bring water to him that is thirsty. They shall meet with bread him that fled. This is an act of kindness and a sharp contrast with the present belligerent attitude of the Arabs. This change will be brought about by the disciplinary action of the Mighty One from Teman. Before participating in the joy and delight of the new kingdom, the mingled people must be subjected to the severe discipline and word and sword and subsequent instruction by Christ and the saints. With this, their cessation of hostility towards Israel will be achieved. The conquest of the Gentile powers 
is next seen in the vision. In Habakkuk 3, 8, 9, and 10. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? That thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers, the mountains saw thee, they trembled, and overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. There's a great deal of symbolical language used at this point in the prophecy. The rivers referenced here likely refer to the Nile and the Euphrates, representative of Egypt and the Assyria-Babylonian, and in type, Gentile nations or powers. Jeremiah had denounced Israel for seeking assistance from Egypt and Assyria using similar language. In reading from the RSV, Jeremiah 2, 17 and 18, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you again by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? In the latter days, Egypt will be represented by the Western powers and the Assyria Babylon represented by the Gogian Confederacy. Complementary to the use of the symbols and the symbolical rivers is the use of the seas. Again, symbolizing Gentile powers against which the anger of Yahweh is about to blaze forth through the mighty one of Teman. His wrath and the wrath of Yahweh is expressed through the use of chariots and horses described in verse 8. Now, horses and chariots are constant symbols of war and in many cases divine war judgments as is their use here. Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Isaiah saw the chariots of Yahweh driving towards Jerusalem to punish the enemies of Israel and to bring the comfort of his nation to salvation. The chariots carry a double meaning including that of war, but as they're used in verse 8, chariots are coupled with salvation. We also see that through this divine wrath, salvation will be brought to the people as a result of the victory of Christ and the saints. This association of chariots with salvation can be found in First Chronicles, where David was giving Solomon the pattern of the temple to be built, which he had received by the Spirit. And the record carries for us in First Chronicles 28 and 18 the following. For the altar of incense refined gold by weight and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims that spread out their wings 
and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now this phrase seems to be a natural extension from the record given by Moses in the construction of the ark and its cover, specifically the mercy seat. When Yahweh says in Exodus 25 and 22, And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So between the cherubims is the vehicle, or the chariot, of communication with Yahweh, the giver of salvation. And likewise, from Habakkuk, Jesus is our chariot with Yahweh, whose strength we will need to fully rely on now and in the days ahead, both for protection and salvation. An important point is made in verse 9. Earlier, Habakkuk had asked the motive of the warlike action on the part of the mighty one of Teman. And here it is answered, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. It is on accord of the oaths to Abraham and to his seed that the mighty one will move against the Gentiles. When the true commonwealth of Israel, those of the golden altar community, seen now in Jesus and the saints, emerge from the south, they will find hostile armies occupying the land. Military action will be necessary to eject them, that they whose right it is may enter into their inheritance. Thus, the vision and prophecy seen by Habakkuk is the fulfillment of Yahweh's oath to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. As a result of this military action, the multitudinous Christ will control the raging waters of the angry rivers. In other words, the Gentiles will be placed under the subjection and rule of Christ and the saints. Thus is the meaning of Habakkuk 3.9. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. Which in the marginal reference reads, Thou didst cleave the rivers of the earth. In verse 10, we see the magnificent glory of the multitudinous Christ. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. While still in symbol, the meaning cannot be misunderstood. Earthquake, storm, tempest, and lightning on an unprecedented scale will terrify the embattled forces in the Holy Land. This will be a time of joy for the believers. It will answer that great question of the apocalypse found in Revelation 6.10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? In Habakkuk, in that third chapter, the 11th through 13th verses, restate for us in dramatic language and with more detail what we have just overviewed. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation 
At the light of thine arrows they went. And at the shining of thy glittering spear, thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. The political and ecclesiastical order of things, the sun and the moon, are astonished at the manifestation of power and the glory by the mighty one. The Gentiles are spellbound by what they see. Isaiah captures the same vision in Isaiah 24:23. The moon shall be confounded, the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his ancients gloriously. And what caused this political and ecclesiastical order of things to be awestruck? The light of the mighty one's arrows and his glittering spear, both recalling Habakkuk's earlier testimonial in the fourth verse of that chapter. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hands. The mighty one's power is no longer hidden. To this point, the mighty one's judgments, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, beginning at the first chapter, the sixth verse, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Seeing it is a righteous thing for with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The multitudinous Christ... The glorified saints visiting everlasting destruction on them that know not Yahweh do so in part as repayment for the tribulation endured by the believers during their probation. In these verses just read, they have a preamble that precedes them. Verse 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. So that we ourselves glory in you in the ecclesias of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye have endured, which is a manifest token, a manifest token of the righteousness, of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. We learn from this that the persecutions and tribulations endured during our probation are described as a manifest token showing forth our faith and commitment to the things of the truth for which Yahweh, through His grace and forbearance, may count us worthy of the kingdom. Paul concludes this thought of recompense in the 11th and 12th verses. 
Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, we, as name-bearers of our Lord Jesus Christ, must focus our thoughts on what is true, noble, righteous, pure, lovable, and completely eschew the world, the apostasy, and those who would dabble therein to ensure the efficacy of our manifest token. Returning to Habakkuk, marching toward the embattled Jerusalem, the outpouring of the judgments of Armageddon are seen in the 12th and 13th verses. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Joel 3, 13 and 14 captures this. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And in the 14th chapter of the Apocalypse, 19 and 20, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. With Gog now overthrown, as described in Ezekiel 39 and 4, Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. And I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. In the aftermath, an ultimatum goes forth from Jerusalem to submit to Christ's rule. In the Apocalypse 14, 6 and 7, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. Some will accept this mid-heaven gospel. Others will have to be compelled to do so. There continues therefore a slaughter whereby the power of the Gentiles will be brought to an end. Verses 14 and 15, better understood if read from other than the King James, and I'll read them from the complete Jewish Bible. Habakkuk 3, 14 and 15. With their own rods you pierce the head of their warriors who come like a whirlwind to scatter us who rejoice at the prospect of devouring the poor in secret. You tread down the seas with your horses, churning up the mighty waters. The antecedent of you in this case, in verse 14, is in verse 8, and is the Hebrew Adonai. This is the plural form and means lords of rulers. 
And quoting from Brother John Thomas's names and titles of the deity, he tells us that this plural word has this to say about it. Adon signifies deity in specific manifestation as a ruler, owner, etc. Adonai signifies deity in multitudinous manifestation. And he cites as a reference familiar to us, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Thus Christ and the saints, the mighty ones clothed in the raiment, the immortalized faithful, are spoken of as creating chaos and fear in the Gentile armies, in part destroying them. From this point, Habakkuk expresses his and Israel's dependence in Yahweh's providence and his final glory. Again, quoting from the expositor, in the explanations and revelations that Habakkuk received from Yahweh, he had complete answers to his problem. He now clearly saw that wickedness does not go unpunished and unnoticed, nor virtue unrewarded, and that in the ways of providence there is careful discrimination of both. His experiences reveal that the just shall live through his faith. And the revelation he received showed beyond all doubt that ultimately the earth shall be filled with the knowledge and the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. With this affirmed, Habakkuk sighs are replaced with a song, self-pity replaced with praise. And the final four verses capture this, Habakkuk 3:16 through 19. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto his people, he will invade them with troops. Habakkuk now expresses his understanding that Israel's tribulations are necessary elements of probation. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. This is our lesson and our exhortation as well. And the lesson being that the trials we experience in these days are for our probation and are for our strengthening. And the exhortation is one to rejoice in the promise of Adonai, the multitudinous Christ, the coming of He whose right it is, the mighty one of our salvation. Because Adonai Elohim is our strength that we may walk in high places. As a final reading, turn to Hebrews 10, where Paul captures this same thought in verses 35 through 37. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, 
that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry.